0: New College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Wednesday afternoon, November 3, 1971, Bible 324, Old Testament Archaeology, continuing the study of the excavation of Babylon, in Dr. Unger's book, Archaeology and the Old Testament. Now, uh, the point where we stopped was where we were noting that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a great building. You might think to read the book of Daniel he was only a great bohard. You recall he uh, took his walk on the wall and said, It's not this great Babylon that I have built for the might of my majesty and the glory of my kingdom. And uh, that was uh, when the Lord struck him down. And he went out to pasture and it says he ate grass like oxen until seven times passed over him. Seven times, presumably seven years, but... That isn't exactly safe clear. as to what seven times I mean's probably seven years ago, and uh, anyhow he uh, he went out to pasture the Babylonians had a um, superstitious fear of the insane, and uh, they wouldn't for anything in the world hurt anybody that was mentally ill on the other hand, they wouldn't get near a meter if they could help it, but uh, put him out to <coughs> Where he was safe and out of the way, and uh, nobody did anything to him. Was, they didn't even set somebody else to be king. They just left him out there. He said he was out there until he learned that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. Daniel, I believe, chapter 5. One chapter in the Bible written by a Babylonian king, and they never could know Nebuchadnezzar. Now, uh, he was. We think of him in the Bible chiefly as the conqueror and deporter of the Jews. But uh, this is, of course, what he did in another country than his own. And he was a military uh, leader and and, uh, fought wars and so forth, and uh, greatly expanded his territory. But he was also famous at home in his own country, and he was a great builder. He rebuilt Babylon and made it the real wonder city of the world of that day and uh, this uh, wording has been found on bricks. This is question 544 in your syllabus. He, um, incidentally, rebuilt 20 temples, fortified the city, and built quays uh, for ships to unload at the edge of the river. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, supporter of Esagila and Edvita, those are two divinities, exalted firstborn son of Naboth king of Babylon. The kings of Assyria, you know how they used to introduce themselves um, something like this. And it's a uh, "Sargon, great king, king of Assyria, king of kings, great king. That's how they would style themselves in a, in a monument or an inscription. Now, the book of Daniel. Uh, One of my professors, Dr. Robert Dick Wilson, under whom I studied advanced Hebrew, said, Daniel wrote Daniel. Or if he didn't, at any rate, it was written by another man who had the same name, did the same things, and lived at the same time. (laughs) Well, well, that's the biblical account of Daniel. According to the Bible, the New Testament also speaks of Daniel as the author of the book of Daniel. But to um, Mr Brown, what's the critical view of the book of Daniel? Uh, I think
1: that
0: about yeah. Now why would these critics say this?
1: Because it has
0: in it. This is this is basically it. Now please note this is not a question of scholarship, it's a question of the basic approach and viewpoint. There are scholars with equal tags on their name, you know. Professor, great professor, professor of professors, 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 professors so-and-so the <laughs> so all that Daniel wrote it like the Bible says. And uh, here this book contains amazing prophecy in detail not only of the coming of Christ but in particular there's two or three chapters in there in the latter part of the book that um, unquestionably were fulfilled in the Maccabean period second century before Christ. And uh, the king of the north and the king of the south and it tells the intrigues back and forth in the wars and who won and who won the next time in such amazing detail that um, critics say this couldn't possibly have been written before those things had happened. And um, these are the, uh, this is generally recognized, the um, two of the kingdoms that resulted from the breakup of Alexander's empire. And we um, find this in... Uh, The eleventh chapter, chiefly this is the series of predictions. Chapter eleven of Daniel. The king of the north is understood to be the Seleucid Empire with capital at Antioch of Syria, a Greek dynasty that followed the breakup of Alexander the Great, and the King of the South would be the Ptolemy dynasty with headquarters in Alexandria, Egypt, also a Greek dynasty. And these forty cheters. And the Jews were first under the one and then under the other, and suffered terribly under the the Syrian-based one. Ptolemy treated you like a human being, but the Seleucids were cruel and oppressive. And uh, this chapter 11 of Daniel foretells the uh, intrigues and um, fighting back and forth between these two in such detail that critics say it's must have been written after the things that happened, and is written up as if it were a prophecy. Now, you see, this is based upon the assumption that God could not reveal the future in detail. Daniel also predicts things about the coming of Christ that was even farther in the future, and so do the other prophets, Isaiah, for 700 years. But once you grant that there is or could be such a thing as predictive prophecy, then this kind of objection falls out right away. If God could, uh, could predict the future, let's say uh, Daniel lived in the 500s and these things happened in the one hundred B.C., and part of maybe in the 200s, three or four hundred years. How much difference does that make to God? Would that be much harder for God to predict than if it were only, only ten years? Now, Mr. Harris, who's going to be the next president of the United States? Well, I'm sure you don't. Nobody else does either, excepting in God. But uh, the Gallup poll wouldn't even at this stage stick their neck out because they'd tell you uh, the popularity rating of these different uh, supposed candidates. But who's really going to be the next president of the United States? Nobody knows. And uh, somebody might venture to, to oh, um, predict as a possibility some trends in American politics ten years in advance. They might get it wrong, too. But who would, who would venture to say what would happen in 400 years or 700 years? And unless you have a supernaturalistic worldview and believe in a transcendent God who is the Lord of the future, to whom the future is already real, predictive prophecy is impossible, you see. And so the critics don't believe in that kind of a God, therefore they say this was written after it happened, therefore Daniel didn't write it. Now, I want to tell you one thing. Uh, Some of you are United Presbyterians, maybe, but we've got another truth here. Uh, The U.P. Seminary in Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, was uh, adding their admissions director, Mr. Adler, was here to speak in chapel and talk to Presbyterian pre ministerial students and uh, arranged conferences with anyone who wanted to interview him and all this done with the uh, cooperation of the college administration. He was sitting down there in the telephone lobby and waiting for chapel time, for Mister McNown to take him up to chapel, and there's about fifteen minutes to go there. And I sat down alongside of him. And I thought somebody ought to tell this buddy a little bit about this college. So I said, Mister Adler, and we wouldn't choose a name like this for ourselves, but this is what you would call a fundamentalist college. Oh, so I said, look, we believe that Moses wrote the five books of Moses complete. That Isaiah was written by Isaiah, the first Isaiah, the whole 66 chapters of it. And Daniel was written by Daniel, not by somebody else after those things happened. He said, yes, I've heard of that point of view. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, see where that puts up. Well, uh, I'm afraid I didn't convert him, but I thought, well, he ought to be told of this and not, and not go in the chapel and stick his theological neck out without being warned. We had a little kid's book for our children in a little called Mr. Bear Split You All Flat. And this bear would squish the houses of other animals and he'd say, hello in there. i Mr. Bear Squish You All Flat and I give you a fair warning. I'm going to count the tree, and I'm going to squish you flat. So uh, <laughs> I at least gave Mr. Adler fair warning. After that he was on his own. Well, uh, you take that point of view that he said he'd heard of, if you praise, the official belief of his denomination that he himself had solemnly vowed to uphold when he was ordained as a minister. Oh. So, um, I don't know, Mr. Dennison, are times changing?
1: Huh? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well,
0: this, this could be. Let's hope so. <laughs>
1: Mm This (laughs) is good.
0: Maybe we're having a revival. I'm not commenting on the institutions, only on Mr. Adler. (laughs) Now, all right, uh, this is the reason why critics say Daniel couldn't have written it. Because they are bugged by, you know, First off, said, West Berlin is a bone that sticks in my throat. West Berlin, 2 o'clock in East Berlin. A bone that sticks in my throat. And the book of Daniel is a bone that sticks in the throat of every Bible critic that doesn't believe in real prophecy. It sticks in their throat, and they kind of choke them on it. <laughs> All right, now, um, the um, critical view that Daniel was written, say, about 400 years after the time of Daniel, runs up against an archaeological here in the discovery of these books with maybe could his name on it. The book of Daniel speaks of him as a great builder. He said, It's not this great Babylon that I have built it. But there was nothing to support that except this statement in the Bible, which could easily be written off by some people as a piece of fiction. But here they dig up the brick, and those say the same thing Nebuchadnezzar, exalted son of Nebuchadnezzar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You see what kind of a guy he was. And uh, therefore, how would anybody forging the Book of Daniel 400 years later know that this man was a great builder that had, had virtually rebuilt the city? They wouldn't know this. And uh, therefore, this is a uh, coincidental confirmation of the statement of the Bible. And it's a uh, difficulty for the critics to claim this was written in the Maccabean period, just a little bit before the time of Christ, and not by in the 100, and not by Daniel at all. Now, um, Kolder-Wise, this German <clears throat> archaeologist had a... Germans are very thorough when they do things, and uh, they really did it. And its organization was well-trained and well-managed and well-financed. And they uh, dug up Babylon and excavated it about... I don't know the exact date of that. Starting at 1899, about the turn of the 7th century. and. Um, they found a lot of things, everything that had been oh, told about Babylon by, in the Bible and by Herodotus and other Greek historians and so forth. And Kodawai turned up the actual <coughs> physical evidence of it. Uh, the Ishtar Gate. Ishtar is the goddess corresponding to the Greek goddess Aphrodite or the Roman goddess Venus, goddess of love and romance. And the fancy gate is dedicated to Ishtar. And here they found 300 tablets in Babylonian cuneiform writing, and they mentioned the Jews and King Jehoiakim. Now there's a, um, a problem in the book of Daniel that the bothered Bible believers for a long time, and they couldn't answer. Who was the last king of Babylon according to the Bible? Who is was the one that saw the handwriting on the wall? Mr. Brown. No, Belshazzar. Double Z. That's the Babylonian trademark, incidentally. They're they going to have Jaffin and it And Z. Double Z. Belshazzar. you see a, even a Jewish name with a double Z. It's probably Babylonian. Probably picked up from the same Babylon. very rubber bullers, uh, another Z in that one. Anyhow, Belshazzar. And then um, he is represented as the last king of Babylon and was assassinated that night after this is in the last chapter of Daniel. He was assassinated um, no, it's not the last chapter, it's, it's before that. It's um, in the chapter 5. That night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Median, with the kingdom being three score and two years old. Now, um, therefore, according to the Bible, Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon, but secular history contradicts this and said that Nabonidus or in the Babylonian pronunciation, Nebunaitis was the last king of Babylon. So you got to bind him, Mr.
1: Canary. <laughs> well, the next
0: one, he was the last Babylonian king of Babylon, and the city fell and was captured by the Persians and the middle Medo- persians Barus became the king after that, see? but he wasn't a Babylonian. It would be like we'd say Nixon is president now. United States. Well suppose the Red Chinese come in and uh, throw him out and put King uh, uh, Pong Fu in. to be, uh, <laughs> would be Nixon would be the last president under our present constitution. See, that's the way. <laughs> well,
1: at
0: least I know how to pronounce Chinese names.
1: All right.
0: <laughs> now, look, uh, critics of the Bible for about a hundred years said the Bible is wrong. This is the classic material for people like Robert Ingersoll who went around with their sheepskin attack on the Bible. It says, uh, Belshazzar and the Greek historians, including Herodotus, the father of history, said, Nabonidus. Notice the psychology here. If the Bible doesn't agree with Herodotus, which do you keep and which do you throw out the window? Well, that depends on who you are. If your name is Brown or Washington, you keep the Bible. But if, if it's um, like some of these critics, you hold on to Herodotus and toss the Bible out. Now, nobody could answer this for a long, long time. And finally, um, it, was, it was answered, however. And uh, what was discovered was, and, and see, uh, when he got Daniel in to read the handwriting on the wall, He promised him, if you could read them and explain that way, you would have such and such and such rewards and be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why wouldn't he say the second ruler? He was the last king. But he didn't. He said the third ruler. Now, it was found by archaeological discoveries in Babylon that um, Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon, all right, but he got tired of life, sort of uh, world-weary and uh, discouraged. He thought he had about nothing, And he made his son Belshazzar co-regent with him. Although Nabonidus was the real last king that, that held the title. Then he went out into the desert where there was an oasis and some palm trees and a nice handy Babylonian monastery. And he decided he'd get away from it all Babylon was too much for him. He wanted some peace and quiet. So he went out there and spent his last years in retirement. Not functioning as king, although still holding the title technically as king of Babylon, but leaving his son, Belshazzar, on the ground to um, do the job. Now this was all discovered, and this explains first place why Belshazzar is called king of Babylon. He was, in fact, he was the de facto king of Babylon, and he was making the decisions to ruling the place until the place he started, so certainly properly called king. Even though his father was there in the monastery, uh, cooling him. And uh, meanwhile, this also explains why he would say the third ruler of the kingdom. You see, he didn't have the authority to say the second ruler. Now, the is number one, Belshazzar is number two, okay, Daniel's going to be number three. So this is completely cleared up now. One more point about this see, the book of Daniel speaks of Belshazzar as the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And the critics have made a point of that one, too. That is easy to answer, though. How can that be answered? Mr. James, you got an answer to that? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this, is, this is a quite easy. Anybody got an answer to that? Mr. No. Yeah. Now, this is common in the Bible, though, this is... Uh, Jesus is called Son of David. Every king of Judah that was descended from David was called Son of David. It might be several generations later. Matthew starts up, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So son is used in the sense of successor, um, rather than merely what, what we mean by son today, that uh, somebody was his immediate father, or parent. So this is, this is really very really straight up. Now um, it says here that on that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans, slain in connection, see, with the capture of Babylon by the Persians. Now, he was holding a cocktail party with a thousand of his lords. Is this the thing to do when a powerful enemy is threatening to capture your city? They'd have done better if they'd believed in God and had a permian. No, a cocktail party. This is what they got the golden cups from the temple of the Lord for, for this party. And they were drinking their drinks out of those. And the Persians got the city of Babylon by a dead easy pushover. There was hardly a fight. They just picked it like you took pick a ripe apple off a tree. Very easily. And there was only a very little bit of bloodshed involved in the Persians' capture of Babylon. But the fact that Belshazzar lost his life in connection with the takeover of the city is not only mentioned here in the Bible at the end of Daniel chapter 5, but it is um, found in benefit. Greek historian, read, any of you have books? in Greek, read Benison? Well, you've read it, huh?
1: Learned
0: no, in Greek, in English. Yeah. All right. The so march of thousands. It's considered a, quite a heroic story. These, these fellows were trapped, and they marched front and got back to Greece. And when they came inside of the sea, they just went wild. Oh, it's all the time, all the time. The sea, the sea, that's Greek, you know. That's, that's, that's really them. Well, they felt like the people of Pittsburgh did when the Pirates won the World Series. And, and they saw the trees. Now, this man wrote a book called the Psyropedia. This is the history of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that took over from the Babylonians. And he mentions this fact. This is a historical story, because this is an archaeology, this a history. But he mentions the fact that uh, Belshazzar was, was killed or assassinated or lost his life in the Last day of the city, when the Babylon, when the Persians took it over. Now then, let think, any more questions on this part? We will have two days yet, of will be Friday and Monday to go back and ask questions on any part of I hope, whole, that the material. The whole first half, of course. But any, anything on what we've just been having here the last the period or two here. So we going to the Persian period. Well, silence uh, and pride, you already know it all. No mm-hmm. <laughs> the Persian period from page 302 to the end of the book. That's 607 questions. And this is section 555. The um, release of the Jewish captives is predicted by Isaiah. How long before Christ did Isaiah is 700 years. Now this again, is objected to on the ground that um, it couldn't have been written uh, before the things happened. This isn't in 700 years before the Jewish captives were released, but it's a good round 150 years or more. From 700 to 539, over 150. So, um, Isaiah, in chapter 45, the end of 44 and the beginning of 45, specifically twice mentions Cyrus, as the king that would do this and give these names. Critics said, couldn't be. Don't kill us any longer. Now, this must have been written after Cyrus had become a world figure. Now, it is unusual in the Bible. This we have to admit for a prophecy to name a person by name. This is only two or three cases this in the Old Testament, but certainly not impossible. And Cyrus is named there. The whole prophecy, the point of it is the ability of Jehovah over against the heathen gods to foretell the future, which they couldn't do, and he could. And that's why it mentions it in there like that. I wonder if Cyrus ever saw a copy of the book of Isaiah and whether he would be impressed at finding his name in the the prophecy there. It said that Alexander the Great was shown a prophecy in Ezekiel, I believe. It didn't mention his name, but uh, certainly he was the fulfillment of it, and he was greatly impressed and thought the religion of the Jews was really something especially since it featured him, <laughs> but uh, I don't know whether, whether Cyrus ever saw this or not. Uh, Cyrus um, left numerous inscriptions and monuments, in addition to what we have about him in the Bible. He allowed not only the Jews but all displaced populations to go back to their original countries. Would you say this would be a good foreign policy move to win friends and influence people? Yeah, now he worked on the general principle that people like you better if you're nice to them than if you kick them in the face. I think that's self-evident. The Babylonians had spent the best part of a 100 years stepping on people and kicking them, well, generally, metaphorically speaking, of course, but being uh, strict and stern and rather cruel. And the Persians started out to be nice to people. Now, let me tell you, they got drunk on power, too, before they got through. But at the beginning of their career here, they treated people much more humanely than either the Assyrians or the Babylonians had done before. Much better. And um, this may have been due to their religion, which, from our standpoint, we'll have to rate a false faith, but in the scale of ancient Near Eastern religions, it's way up near the top, doro Very probably the wise men who came to Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus were members of this faith. And this religion uh, did motivate people to um, owe a humanitarian kindness toward their fellow men. And so the Persians treated people much better than the uh, very um, cruel Assyrians and Babylonians had done. And uh, later, I say, they became um, tyrannic under five, too. Whoever said, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think that was Burke, was it, in the British Parliament, some noted person anyway, but it's true. God can't trust very many people with absolute power over their fellow men, and depend on using it justly and wisely. All right, now Cyrus, um, uh, he could ride a horse in several directions at once. This is a very uh, art of ride horsemanship. He could go north, south, east, and west all the same time riding that horse. He claimed every religion he was talking to, he claimed to be on their side. Like the man from nationwide, he's on your side. (laughs) Cyrus told the Jews, and it's in the book of, uh, well, it's in the uh, historical record, that uh, the Lord Jehovah had commissioned him to build a temple in Jerusalem. He told the Babylonians that Marduk, God of Babylon, had commanded him to capture their city, it fixes it up, of course. And furthermore, all the way from Praise of Babylon, Marduk had marched side by side with him in step, you know, that's right, like that, all the way. Nobody else saw Marduk, but Cyrus saw him. He's very plain. And uh, this is, um, well, I don't know what you call it, any national And the Phoenicians and the Assyrians from Damascus and everybody else, he, he butted him up the same way. Now, if you ask me, I don't think Cyrus believed any of this stuff. He was a Zoroastrian, and I doubt very much that he really believed in the God of the Jews as the one and only true God. Maybe he thought the God of the Jews ranks with other divinities as having a degree of divinity, but anyhow, this was, this was his policy. And maybe because of this humane policy, the Persian Empire lasted longer than either the previous ones. It lasted... Um, 200 years and a trifle over 539 to 333 when it was finally knocked out by Alexander the Great. Now uh, this this empire, I'm going to speak about it a little bit, uh, mentioned in the book of Esther in the Bible, 127 provinces. And this has been figured out to be 3,000 miles long from east to west. 500 to 1,500 miles wide from north to south, uh, different distance of different places, and 2 million square miles that Cyrus the, the Persian ruled over. 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, India, what we would today call West Pocket, then, then called India, on one side, to Ethiopia or Nubia, south of Egypt. On the other side, 127 provinces. That's the biggest empire the world had ever known at that time. And incidentally, Greece was never included in it. The Persians wanted to lick the Greeks, and they fought and fought and fought and fought. And the Greeks valued their freedom and fought them off and fought them to a standstill. And uh, they gave it up for a bad job, and the Persian king, it says, went back to uh, this, is, uh, this is Xerxes, called Ahasuerus in the book of Esther he went back to Susa um, or Shushan and devoted himself to his harem having given up trying to win a war against the Greeks that's uh, what the record says about him in the uh, Greek historians now um, the we um, were dealing there with the policy of the Persians about displaced people Mr. Harris
1: What is that valley of Lost five minutes and then everybody died in yeah. the battle. Yeah,
0: this was the first Thermopylae, wasn't that it? Yeah, yeah. the narrow pass. The mountain comes down almost to the sea, and there's a narrow place to get by. And well, these Spartans lost their lives in it, but they fought uh, the Persians off. And um, yeah. yeah, Athens was never captured. No part of Greece really was ever captured by the Persians. Oh, they, they, they failed. They simply failed. And then later, see, that was in the uh, uh, 500s there, uh, about the year 500 and the beginning of the 400s, later Alexander the Great, in toward the, in the, the end of the 300s, turned the tables on him. And here's a European and a Greek. We would call him a Greek. He's a Macedonian, but that's quite a Greek today. He turns the tables on him and knocks out the Persian Empire. So, uh, and world history changes. The center of it becomes Europe and not Asia anymore after that. First Greece and then Rome. Now, um, not only did he allow displaced persons to go back, but he said he restored the gods to their proper domicile. Now, this, of course, means the images of the gods or the idols. And um, he had no idols from Jerusalem to send back. But he did send back all these gold and silver dishes and other objects and equipment that had been stolen from the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. This was checked out, and you'll find it in the book of Ezra. It was checked out, and nothing was missing. They got an inventory list of it. So many of this item, and so so many of that. And they got it back here after all those years, the best part of the hundred years, 586 to 538 or nine and got it back and took it back to Jerusalem. When they got there, there was no temple to put it in. They had to build a temple. They built a temple, and and then they had a place for these things. Now, he allowed the gods, he said, to go back, and uh, countries that had idols, the idols were restored. And those that didn't, the silver cups and dishes and so forth, and gold objects were restored. Um, Hunger takes up here a number of them. the, the return of the Jews to Jerusalem this is not archaeology this is history 564 first return was um, under Ezra or under um, yes under uh, 50,000 people 42,360 Jews and 7,300 and some servants that worked for them and um, it speaks of in Ezra of the Persians, having, let's see if I can find it, Ezra, Nehemiah, this is way back, it says the 2nd of Ezra, yeah, before Nehemiah, yeah. Ezra chapter 2, verse 69, The Jews that didn't go back evidently felt a little conscience-stricken about this. They didn't volunteer to go back to Jerusalem, which was a hazardous, difficult, and expensive trip. And only those to whom their religion meant a very great deal would do this. The rest were doing too well making money in Babylon. But the ones that remained behind gave a um, large um, fund of money to help the ones that went. And it speaks of this. This was not given by the Persians. This was money raised by these people. And it speaks of um, 1,000 grams of gold, 5,000 pounds of silver, and 100 priests arms And um, it is hard for us to tell exactly how much that was worth. Now, in this verse, 69, it speaks of Gram in the King James Version. This is the, the Greek word is drachma, D R A C H M A, or the uh, Persian word would be a darek, pound of silver. And it is argued that um, this drachma or daric, is a Greek coin and couldn't have been in use in Palestine until after the time of Alexander the Great. Now, uh, you can date something by a coin. Coins have the name of a king or maybe a date on them. Remember the fellow that went to the British Museum with a whole handful. They didn't buy them with him, though. And um, the claim is that this this coin couldn't have been found in Palestine before Alexander the Great, who flooded the place with Greek money. His soldiers bought things with it, paid for it. But in answer to this, Dr. Unger says the attic was a standard coin in Palestine from the middle of the 5th century B.C., that's the 400, at least. And some of these were discovered in 1931, uh, middle of the 5th century, that would be about 450 B.C., after the, the return of these captives, but about the time of Nehemiah, and 100 years before the time of Alexander the Great. Now, coins drift around, and occasionally you find a Canadian penny in a parking meter. And uh, coins uh, get carried around, and Roman coins were found in a horde by digging on the east coast of India. On the east, not the side nearest to Rome, on the other side of India, on the east side of India. And it was shown there was a Roman trading station there, and here was bottles of Roman wine, empty though. (laughs) <laughs> but that had been exported there from Rome and either sold or used by the uh, people that named this place and quite a collection of Roman coins from about the first century B.C. and first century A.D. on the east coast of India. Roman coins found in a ford dug up in the forest of northern Germany. The Germans had soldiers the Romans had soldiers there and they paid their soldiers in gold coins. And when the Germans killed the soldiers, the coins stayed there. And uh, quite, a, quite a horde was two To the forth Forest, from the Elbe River, northern Germany. So coins get around, and this claim of the critics that these coins couldn't have been in Palestine before Alexander the Great, the proper answer to that is, though couldn't they? Who says so? And obviously they could have. Now, um, the... Uh, temple was started to be built the second year after the Jews got back, and the first the major undertaking that they did was to rebuild their temple. If you remember reading the Bible, it says when the temple was built, a few of the oldest people that had seen Solomon's temple lifted up their voice and wept. These were tears of sadness and tears of joy mixed. They were glad to have their temple rebuilt now, but it wasn't Solomon's Temple. This was the best they could do under their uh, somewhat limited conditions now. It wasn't like Solomon's Day. And they recognized this temple wasn't Solomon's Temple. And uh, so they shed some tears over this. Can you imagine these Jews coming back from Babylon on foot? Only a very small fraction of them had ever seen Jerusalem. These are the grandchildren of the people that had been taken away from Jerusalem, and only a few oldsters. And on the way, as they would camp um, for the night, you know, and build their fire and eat their meal and visit and tell stories, the old ones would tell the young ones what a beautiful city Jerusalem was, remembering it as it was in its prime, in their youth. And then finally these people would they'd build this up, you know, and wonder it's the city of God, pride and joy of the earth and so forth and when they get there this slum this absolute slum ashes and dirt and rubbish and broken down houses and rubble and nobody for, from the 586 to 538 has done one thing to clear any of that up they had no gunction they had no money and they had no authority and there it has lain in ruins like that for all those years and this slum is this the city of God that you told us about Can you imagine the psychological letdown that those people would have? Did you have to bring us all the way from Babylon to show us a junkyard? And uh, this would be how they would feel. Well, they went to work and started to build their temple, even before they went to build houses for themselves. Build the temple of God. Somebody said the Pilgrim Fathers at Plymouth Rock landed the shore there and first fell on their knees and then fell on the Aborigines. This uh, so is not fair to the pilgrim fathers. They had a very good record of uh, good relations with the Indians and did not cheat uh, them or persecute them or anything of the kind. But uh, that's what the saying was. Well, the Jews had learned their lesson. God comes first now. Come back from Babylon. God's first. No nonsense about it. The temple of God goes up first. And everything's later. So they went to work on this temple. This was um, greatly blocked by their enemies. Both the building of the wall, which was later under Nehemiah, and the building of the temple, the Samaritans and other uh, assorted uh, local people around there, they didn't want the Jews to come back in the first place. Of course not. When the Jews were taken away, they had grabbed up all this good land and figured it's theirs now. Now the real owners of it come back. They want it. So this has a potential for conflict. And and they blocked the uh, rebuilding of the temple and later on... uh, century later, the re- almost the rebuilding of the wall. Now, um, we come to another subject, and that is, um, there are four letters in the book of Ezra that are written in the Aramaic language instead of in Hebrew. And some scholars have denied that these could be genuine. They would have been in Hebrew if they were genuine. But further discoveries have proved that... Um, Aramaic or Syrian was the common language for all international correspondents at that time in that part of the world, as probably Arabic would be today. Elefantini. Now, if you call it elephantine, why well that's wrong. Elefantini. Uh, what is this and where is it? We've gotten beyond what we're supposed to do today. All right. Uh, this is an island in the upper Nile River, and there was a colony of Jews there. And uh, this has been discovered. The first cataract of the Nile, the first waterfall you meet going up the Nile. And at this this place, on this island, a great quantity of papyrus documents have been found, and there was a colony of Jews there. At apparently the the same time that that most of the Jews were deported to Babylon, some were left behind and later went to Egypt. This is recorded in the... the, um, Ended the uh, book of Jeremiah, I believe, and apparently they took Jeremiah with them forcibly to Egypt. He prophesied against it and said, No good will come of it. The future belongs to those that went to Babylon and not to you people and, and just called it off. But the they went anyhow to Egypt and apparently founded this colony and they tried to carry on the worship of the Lord in a somewhat mixed up and corrupted way rather confused but uh, they tried to carry it on and they had some problems with the old government officials and authorities there in Egypt and they wrote letters to the Jews in Jerusalem SOS please help us out we need help and we need it badly and it's these letters that were discovered um, in the middle of the 4th century B.C. and they are in Aramaic as the ones are that are in the book of Ezra and the style and get up of a letter, you know, you, how do you start a letter? You start saying, Dear Sir, when huh? you start a letter. There was a young fellow in India studying at a missionary school, and uh, he got a book on how to write letters in English, which wasn't his language. And he wrote to a lady missionary, and he started this letter out this way, Dear Sir or Madam, as the case may be. <laughs> well, these letters are in style corresponding to what we have there in the book of Ezra. Now, um, let's see, did we have a picture? Yeah, 362. I'll pass this around and then we'll be
1: about circling it at 262.
0: This is a good picture of one of the Elephantine papyri. This is from Begoas, to Begoas, the governor of Judea, the government official. Found these people at Elephantine, or Yeb as it was also called, that's easier to pronounce, crying out loud here for help. And uh, this will show you what it looks like. That's the the We'll not that That's far enough for the day. Brings us to question 576, and then come Friday we'll, we'll easily finish this and take up the um, further backlog of review, and uh, the same on Monday. Mr. James. Yeah, this is over. That, that um, little test we had uh, one day there for half a period that was the confession of the establishment. <laughs> I, however, did not hand them any low grades. Any of you fellows were still, um, staying awake and I'm worrying about your grade on that. I, well, I figured on that finally was C-minus and you don't hand those in. So I went down to the office and told them. and myself crossed it off. They in ink and wrote my initials underneath, so... They didn't, they didn't get after anybody, did they? You didn't hear from us? All right, all class. Yeah, Mr. Lee. Well, it's on the uh, archaeology of the Old Testament.
1: <laughs>
0: it's chiefly of the objective time-honored good old multiple choice type. Do you like that kind, Mrs. Johnson? You're not allergic to them? No, all right. There might be a place or two where you're asked to write your name and a few little facts about something, but it's um, chiefly of the objective type. Okay?